Have your way in this place, Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Who's thankful for the mercy of Jesus Christ here this morning? My God in heaven. Had it not been for the Lord on your side, where would you be? I think that it is a scary thought for many of us in this room to not realize how abundantly He loved us when we weren't lovely and how dangerous it was for us to be on our own. Thank you, Jesus, for your mercy. Thank you. Go ahead. Give him a hand clap of praise. My God in heaven. Some of you wouldn't be here today. The lucky ones would be incarcerated. Then there'd be some of us that wouldn't be here at all. Nowhere on this. You'd have to come visit us in a cemetery somewhere. But because of his grace, because of his mercy, he has turned us around, set us on the right path, and we're here today to give him praise. You should never shortchange God on your praise. You should never be holding your praise back because had it not been for him holding back the waves, had it not been for him holding back the devil, had it not been for him holding the disease off, you wouldn't be here to celebrate. So every chance you get, you ought to lift his name high. You owe God a praise. Go ahead. Give him about 10 seconds of your best, craziest praise right here. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. You can be seated in His presence if you're able to this morning. My God in heaven, thank you for being here. It is so good to have you here because we are two weeks away from a one-year anniversary of the whole world shutting down. These two weeks I was out preaching. I was preaching some friends of mine, a couple of revivals. I was downstate and then I was out in Worcester, Ohio. And it was right about that time in these next two weeks that I was preaching. And we were having normal service. And then on the 15th of March the whole world stopped and we had to stop service for several months. And last Easter, we're five weeks away from this Easter. Last Easter, we weren't even able to be in the house of God. Ten of us were. I had enough cast there to, to, to sing to you. And I preached and I had Brother JR to man the cameras. And other than that, uh, the houses of God was empty on Easter. It, it's been quite a year. Can somebody say amen? <laughs> but it seems like things are starting to finally... Relax and normalize, at least in the minds of most people. And I thank God for that. Whether, whether you got a shot, you didn't get a shot, you're not getting one, doesn't make any difference because at least the world's starting to kind of normalize. So uh, a preacher friend of mine said a few weeks ago, get the vaccine or get the victory, but get back to the house of the Lord. So that's where we're at. And uh, amen. But we're, uh, we're, we're excited about the next season uh, because we're not exactly sure what it's going to look like, but we're starting to start planning and formulate some things that we've been missing and haven't been able to accomplish because of uh, everything being the way it is. But kids are starting to go back to school five days a week. Uh, stores are starting to relax the things that they had. It seems like things are beginning to normalize. We've walked by faith the entire time, but that doesn't mean everybody has. And you can't exactly just uh, ignore the, the, the feelings of everybody else on the planet when you're trying to make plans and, and arrange things. So uh, I'm looking forward to normalizing service again. We're going to start, before this new series that I'm going to begin this morning, before this series is out, we're going to start having altar services again. Uh, I'm, I'm just going to start, we're going to start working our way back in. Uh, it won't be uh, quite like it was, but who knows if anything's ever going to be quite like it was ever again. Uh, but we are going to uh, start trying to uh, get more in intimate Instead of so divided and separated. God spoke a word to me at the beginning of this year uh, that, that we're supposed to be uh, committed to doing a couple of things. And one of those things is being intentionally together. Com connected together. And so uh, we're working toward that end. And it's only February. Well, it'll be March tomorrow. But it's only February. We've still got some time to accomplish what God's called us to do. But I'm excited. Uh, continue to pray. Our old property is uh, pending a sale and as long as everything goes through, we'll have that sold. Amen to God. And uh, so we can focus on uh, the things that are important right here, which is the building that we're currently uh, worshiping in instead of trying to maintain properties all over the counties. So I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> I'm going to begin a new series this morning that is going to be unlike the last series. The last series we touched on a lot of hot 
topics in the, in the societal realm and, and we extrapolated truth from the Bible that met us right where we are, I believe, as a society. I'm going to be more personal in this series. Uh, last series, we dealt with things like societal issues and church issues as a whole. In this series, I'm going to get down to you. I'm going to get it down. I'm going to drill down the best I can, as the Holy Ghost will give me the ability to. I'm going to drill down into some very uh, intimate and personal choices that you make, situations you put yourself into, and difficulties that you need to overcome. This series is titled, I'm Better Than This. I'm Better Than This. Now, what I want you to know is, it don't matter where you are, you're better than this. Because I know some of you are already thinking, well, this ain't going to have much to do with me because me and God's got a pretty good thing and, and my family's together and I got this. Let me tell you, it doesn't matter how you are in your health. It doesn't matter how you are in your emotional well-being. It doesn't matter how you are in your relationals. Uh, it doesn't matter how you and God are getting along. don't matter how powerful your prayer life is. I'm going to talk about this morning. It doesn't matter how anointed you are. You can speak in tongues from the time the sun come up to the sun go down and you can do better than this. I'm better than this. You don't have to be a train wreck in here this morning for me to minister to you. No matter where you are, you can aspire and say, I'm better than this. I've been married a long time, but I'm better than this. I've been walking with God for this many years, but I'm better than this. I can still do better than what I'm doing right now. And if you believe that, give God a hand clap of praise. I'm better than this. No matter where this is, I'm better than than this. I'm going to take my text this morning out of 1 Kings chapter 19. Now in 1 Kings 19, this comes on the heels of one of Elijah's greatest victories. You remember the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel. How he went on Mount Carmel and he taunted uh, the prophets of Baal because they had a God calling down experiment or contest and Elijah won. The prophets of Baal called on their God and nothing happened. They spent all day uh, cutting themselves and shrieking out and trying to get God to answer by fire, but Baal didn't answer them. Elijah started poking fun at them. Maybe he's in the bathroom. Maybe Baal went on vacation and can't hear you from the, from the Tahiti resort where he's at. He started poking fun at him, and then, of course, we know that he called down uh, upon the, the God of the great Jehovah, the God of Israel, and fire rained down. Not only took the sacrifice, took up the rocks, took up the water, and took up, even sucked up the dust off the ground. Elijah had proven himself to be a true man. And then, uh, not only a true man of God, but then he slew, he killed all the prophets of Baal. 450 plus the 400 that lived in the groves, Elijah had God on his side and nothing could stop him. I love walking in victory. I mean, I love walking in Holy Ghost victory. I love it when the Holy Ghost just comes on me and gives me an empowerment where I feel like I can run through a troop and leap over a wall. I, I love when God shows up and gives a healing, a supernatural healing when the doctors had given up on them, but God shows up and says, let me show you what I can do. I love it when God gives me the victory. But you got to be careful because after every great victory comes a 1 Kings chapter 19. And that's what I want to talk to you about this morning because if you're going to be better than this, you got to be ready for the ups and the downs. Because it seems like we get addicted to the ups. We get addicted to the ups preaching. Oh, we like it when the preacher is telling us that we're overcomers. We like it when the preacher's preaching to us that Jesus walked on the water and helped Peter do it, and I can too. We like it when the preacher is preaching to us and telling us that, that there is no weapon formed against us that shall ever proper. We, we like that preaching. But if I'm better than this, i got to be ready for what comes next. So I'm going to prepare you the best of my ability this morning. Chapter 19 of 1 Kings, verse 1. When Ahab got home, now King Ahab is the king of, uh, of the region where Elijah has just killed these prophets. He just called fire down. And King Ahab was the one who was in charge of those prophets. So when Ahab got home, he told his wife Jezebel, 
everything Elijah had done, including the way he had killed all the prophets of Baal. So Jezebel sent this text message to Elijah. May the gods strike me and even kill me if this by this time tomorrow I have not killed you just like you killed them. Stop right there. He was walking in victory, remember? Remember how good everything was in the last chapter? Remember how he had Holy Ghost fire that had fallen out of heaven and no weapon formed against me? Can't you see him just having a Holy Ghost fit coming down off that mountain? I mean, he was probably strutting like George Jefferson. I mean, couldn't nothing shake his faith? I mean, he would have been walking on. I mean, there is absolutely no way the devil could get to him. And then Jezebel sends a message. Elijah, verse 3, was afraid. Stop right there. How do you go from victory to afraid with one message? How do you go from an overcomer to afraid just like that? He was afraid and fled for his life. He went down to Beersheba, the town of Judah, and left his servant there. Then he went on alone into the wilderness traveling all day. He sat down under a solitary broom tree and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord. Anybody ever had enough? Has anybody just, just, just ever, God, I, I'm, I'm glad for the victory that you gave me, but I've had enough. Don't answer that, don't answer that, but just sit on that truth for a minute. He said, I've had enough, Lord. Take my life, for I am no better than my ancestors who have already died. Then he lay down and slept under the broom tree. But as he was sleeping, hold on to this because I'm coming to this at the end of this message. An angel touched him while he was asleep, while he was asking to die. When he gave up hope, an angel touched him. I wish I had a witness. And the angel said, get up and do something for yourself. I'm better than this. Get up and feed your. Get up and be responsible for this moment of your life. Get up and instead of asking for something existentially to happen, get up and take care of this thing. I'm better than this. Make shake yourself off. Get rid of yesterday and say, I'm better than this. Get up and eat. He touched, he looked around. And, and there beside his head was some bread baked on hot stone and a jar of water. So he ate and he drank and he laid back down again. Sounds like a Pentecostal Sunday. <laughs> then the angel of the Lord came again and touched him and said, Get up and eat some more, for the journey ahead will be too much for you. I just taught on this on Wednesday night. If you join me, one of, those, uh, one of those common things that people say is, the Lord will never put more on you than you can bear. That's not what the Bible says. And very plainly, the angel of the Lord just told him here, says, you better take care of yourself because you can't take what's about to happen. You need the Lord on your side. I don't know what you're about to face, but you need God on your side to go through it. So he got up. And ate and drank, verse 8, and the food gave him enough strength to travel 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. There he came to a cave where he spent the night. I want to talk to you this morning about this man, Elijah. And I want to draw your attention to everything that we just read. And I'm going to go back through it and, and try to give you the truth of what I see in Elijah because it's the same thing that I find in myself. It has been said that you and I are living in the age of anxiety. I remember my grandmother preparing Sunday dinner on Saturday because she wouldn't work on Sundays. And she didn't prepare it the way you prepare it. Grandma didn't have an electric, a gas stove. Grandma had a coal stove. She cooked chicken and dumplings every Saturday. Because chicken and dumplings was Sunday dinner. I went out in the yard, picked Sunday dinner. That was my job. She would pluck it. She'd boil it. She'd put it in a pot. And Sunday, she'd set it on that coal stove to warm it up because she wouldn't want to work on the Lord's day. 
We've got microwave ovens now. And food that you can put in that microwave oven and have it in a minute and 30 seconds. We've got computers that we carry in our pockets. We've got technology that is able to take a rover and stick it on Mars and send not only audio back but video too. We're able to watch this little go-kart run around the planet of Mars. We've got all of these conveniences and yet we're wore out. I'm old enough to remember when microwaves was still a rare thing because they cost like four or $500 when they first came out. Mitchum House wasn't getting one for a while. My mama was still cooking it the old-fashioned way because she wasn't spending that kind of money. Not that we ever had it anyway, but she wasn't spending that kind of money on something that looked like a passing fad. But I can remember the advertisements for microwave ovens was they're going to be such time savers. You're going to have all this extra time, ladies. You'll be able to go in and put your feet up and watch days of our lives. Because the microwave oven is going to save you all of this time. And we've got microwave ovens, and we've got faster cars, and we've got computers, and we've got technology, and we're able to communicate around the globe in the time that it would have taken weeks when I was a kid. And yet, we're still up to our eyeballs in debt, up to our, over our heads in frustration, and we have got all of this anxiety and pent-up frustration over the world, and we don't feel like we're in control. That's why Paul told us in Philippians 4 and 6 to be anxious for nothing. To be anxious or worry about anything. I want to talk to you later in this series about that word worry. But I want you to pay attention to what Paul said. Don't be anxious for anything, but pray about everything. Now if I were to get 10 of you after service and ask all 10 of you what you think anxiety is, I would probably get 10 different answers. Because it doesn't seem like people really know what anxiety is. You know why? Because you define anxiety by what it is you're facing. Some of you would say, my anxiety is my husband. Some of you would say, my anxiety is my children. Some of you would say, my anxiety is my job. But none of that is really your anxiety or the root of it anyway. Because anxiety is actually an emotion. And it's an emotion that a person experiences in the face of perceived threat or danger. The reason I say perceived is because sometimes what you're anxious about ain't even real. The reason I say perceived is it can be a real thing. I have a bill due on Thursday. That is a reality. But some of the stuff you have been anxious about wasn't even real. I'm going to deal with that in a little bit uh, in this sermon. A person becomes anxious when he or she has a negative emotion inside of them that is difficult for them to deal with so they don't deal with it. It might be hate, it might be fear, it might be unforgiveness, it might be anger, it might even be jealousy. And if you don't deal with those inside frustrations, they'll come out in the form of anxiety. So rather than deal with your emotions, people bury them. But you can't bury emotions so deep that they don't leak out somewhere. Whatever's in the heart is eventually going to come out of you some way. Anxiety is when we take the future and put it over top of our today so that we're not able to see what today holds because all we're doing is worrying about what tomorrow holds. That's anxiety. Depression, which is what I'm going to talk about this morning, is when you do the same thing with the past. See, anxiety is when you snatch tomorrow and put it on today. Depression is when you bring yesterday and do the same thing. And you can't see the blessing, you can't see the deliverance, you can't see the victory of the moment because all you can see is the pain of the past because you have transported what used to be into the now. Uh, see, I want you to, before I get too deep into this series, I need to set some ground rules. You need to understand who you are. Every person that's sitting in this room today, you think you know them, but they're really more than one person. 
See, when I, when I get ready to marry a couple, I set them down, especially if they're young people. I set them down and I say, I want you to know you're not just marrying the person sitting in front of you. You're marrying everybody they used to be. And you're marrying everybody they're going to be. You're marrying somebody that ain't even created yet. Because I can tell you from being married 27 years, the me that she married isn't the me that she got. I'm a different person now, and all of you are, if you live enough days. So when you get married, you're not just marrying the person that you're holding hands with. I know they're cute, but they ain't going to last that long. Cute goes away. Six-packs don't stand. Stuff that she used to have all up high and tight starts drooping and sagging. So you better have something besides cute when you say, I do. Because you're not just marrying the person in front of you. You're marrying everybody they have been and everybody they will be. Which makes sense to me because you know you're not just who you are anyway, right? You know you're not just who you are sitting in this pew this morning. You are a spirit. You have a soul and you live inside of a body. So the body is the one that we know, but that ain't the real you. Our bodies are limited. Oh, I thought I might get an amen from some of my uh, older people in here. Your bodies break down. They break up. Sometimes they just flat out break. Your spirit lives forever. It's kind of like the house falls down, but the renter keeps living. See, I still feel like I was 27 on the inside. Ain't one part of me outside still feels that way. I'm up here limping in front of you this morning. Now, I want you to understand the body, the soul, and the mind. Before we get into this series, I need you to get an understanding of this because it's my body that gives me world consciousness. I am conscious of what's going on around me because of my body. Without the body, I can't tell whether it's hot or cold in this room. Do you know the person laying in that coffin at the, cemetery, at, the, at the funeral parlor, they don't care what temperature it is? Because they have lost their world consciousness. It's my spirit that gives me God consciousness. So if my body gives me world consciousness, my spirit gives me God consciousness, but my problem comes from my soul because my soul gives me self-consciousness. My feelings, my memories, my attitude, my I got to get mine before you get yours, my self-preservance, my, my, my ability to deduce things about you. Let me tell you some stuff about you that you don't know. That comes from my soul. I'm going to be angry because of my soul. I'm going to be frustrated because of my soul. I'm going to be uptight because of my soul. I'm going to be jealous. I'm going to be cautious. I'm going to take turns uh, beating on you because of my soul. That's where my problems come from. Because if my self-consciousness ever gets more powerful than my God-consciousness, I'm out of balance. And I'm feeding more of who I am instead of who He wants me to be. You can master any circumstance if you can master you. Let me say that to you again because some of you don't like me saying that. Do you realize that if you get a grip on you, you can stop trying to get a grip on him or her? Some people are in this room this morning frustrated with life because I can't get them to do what... No, no, no. If you would get a hold of you, you'd quit worrying about what they are or what they aren't doing. Your problem is not them. Your problem is you. Because if you can get yourself centered, you'll quit worrying about what everybody else is doing. So in my soul, my psyche, my mind, that's where my memories live. Oh, yes. All my memories. The good, the bad, and the ugly. I know you got saved, but you didn't get amnesia. You still remember all that junk you used to be into. You still remember how that stuff tasted. Don't you come in this church and act like just because you got saved, you don't remember what sin was now. No, but you have to change your drive, your passion. See, my passion for anything exists between my ears. My ability to conjure up images and imaginations makes my mind my best asset or my worst enemy. 
Because your mind is the ultimate supercomputer. You can think yourself happy. Or you can think yourself mad. You can invent things that don't exist. Or you can ignore things that are right in front of your face. Because the fight is over your mind. The devil is fighting for control of your thought life. Because whatever happens in your mind, we've talked about this, becomes your reality. So how does Elijah, this great man of God, end up sitting under a tree asking God to kill him? Here's Elijah. He called down fire from heaven. He had killed the prophets of Baal, and yet he comes to God not one day later and says, Just take me out, Lord. Anybody ever just want to quit? I mean, you love Jesus, but y'all going to leave me in here by myself. I don't have one honest Christian. I mean, you love Jesus, but sometimes you just want to quit. I mean, I I know I ain't the only one that's ever went to the Lord and said, Lord, if this is as good as it gets, could you maybe just give me a ticket now? I mean, I, I know where I'm going when I die. I love my family, and I love the church, and I love serving you. But God, if this is as good as it gets, does anybody know how that feels? Give me, thank you for being honest. But pastor, Christians don't get depressed. I heard that one time when I was a young minister. Somebody told me, but Christians don't get depressed. How many of you believe that? <laughs> yeah, right. I like that answer. Of course they do. And they always have. You, you start singing some of the old spirituals in the Red Back Hymn, you'll find out folks have always been depressed, but they love Jesus at the same time. Christians have always struggled with depression. And very few people, Christian or not, have escaped this life without de- dealing with some very serious seasons of depression. Uh, and, and there's several types of depression, and I want to get something out of the way uh, real quick. Some people suffer from what's known as chronic depression. That's clinical. That's caused by a malfunction of your brain or an imbalance in your chemicals. I'm not talking to you because that needs medication. That, 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 that is a, no more, it's no different than having diabetes or another physical ailment. You need something to take care of that and balance that out for you. I'm not talking to you. What I'm talking to are the type of depression that Elijah fell under. And every person in this room will suffer from this kind of depression. It's the same kind of depression that David said when, when he said, Oh my soul, why are you so cast down? That's what David was dealing with. He was dealing with depression. He was dealing with a moment where he felt like his his day had gotten as bad as it could possibly get. History is littered with great people that have battled desperate depression. Go over and read Numbers 11. Find Pastor Moses wanting God to kill him instead of keep pastoring the people. I cannot confirm nor deny that I have not prayed that same prayer. He said, God, these people that you have been so good to keep complaining because they want to go back and eat the garlic in Egypt. Just kill me now. (laughs) That ought to be the pastor's prayer every day. God, just kill me now. (laughs) Jeremiah got so upset because people weren't responding to his messages. He did the same thing. He said, God, it would have been better if I was never born out of my mother's womb. Y'all to just let me die. Jonah over in Jonah chapter 4, here's the preacher saying, God, just kill me. I went over here and preached a revival and the whole town got saved. And I'm upset about it. Aye, 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 aye. What? Yeah, if I got to go to heaven with these Ninevites, I don't want to be there. And he got everybody in, he got all them Assyrians saved and now he don't want to go to heaven. He wants God to just kill him. But the worst case seems to be this man called Elijah. And from the Bible we learn that that his depression seemed to be the kind that you and I have probably faced at some point in our life. The darkest moment of his life. Here's the prophet that the Jewish people of Jesus' day considered to be the greatest prophet who ever lived. And yet no man in history could have possibly served God with greater integrity under a more difficult circumstance and under complete surrender to God than Elijah did. But your passage this morning finds him terribly depressed. Now I want you to understand that he had been the preacher, he'd been the prophet, he'd been the sage of the area for three years. And during those three years, Israel had turned its back toward God. 
They had stopped worshiping Baal uh, as a national uh, and a nationwide. I mean, there was a nationwide revival. We need that kind of revival in our uh, nation today. And it was all due to Elijah. Elijah was doing what God called him to do. But there was one person who wasn't very impressed with old Pastor Elijah. And her name was Jezebel. She wasn't intimidated by the anointing that was on his life. This person named Jezebel was the queen of King Ahab. She was a wicked woman. She She did not like Elijah because Elijah had influence. And Jezebel always fights against godly influence. Now get the picture. Here was Elijah who had been fearless for three years. And he's threatened by one woman. And he gets afraid. He tucks his tail and flees into the desert. The Bible says he left his servant and walked one whole day by himself back into the woods. Notice what it says in verse 3. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. And he ran into the woods or into the desert for a whole day. He came to a broom tree, sat down under it, and prayed that God would kill him. That's deep depression, friend. He said, God, I've had enough. I don't want to do this anymore. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. I don't know. I don't want you to raise your hand in here, but somebody has got to bear witness with how Elijah's feeling right now. I love you, Lord, but I just don't want to take this anymore. God, I love you, but I would rather not suffer this way anymore. So I'm going to answer four questions before, or I'm going to give you four answers to this question, and and then I'll get out of your way. Why did Elijah, a man of God, a man who was obviously anointed and was doing what God wanted him to do, why did Elijah become depressed? i got four answers I want to give you, and then I'll get out of your way. Why did he become depressed? Because he played four mental games on himself that we all are guilty of. Number one... He looked at his feelings instead of his facts. Elijah was a tremendous prophet. He was coming off of a great victory for the cause of God. But because of one incident, he felt like a failure. He got one message from one woman, and he ran. He was made to feel like a failure by Jezebel... Because she said he was a failure, he adopted that mindset and said, I must be one. The facts were he had led the nation to revival. The facts were he had called fire down from heaven. The facts were God himself had anointed him to be a victorious and a king seer and a prophet to the area. But his feelings told him he was a failure. You can ignore the facts if you get all in your feels. This is called, they call this in counseling, emotional reasoning. And it's dangerous. He based his reasoning on feelings and they will trick you every time. Because the truth is, feelings are not facts. They are highly unreliable. The reason we get in trouble with depression is because we go by how we feel instead of what we know. You cannot stay on an emotional high forever. Feelings will fool you. There are some in here today that probably walked into this room letting emotions fool them. Some people are sitting under the sound of my voice or watching online and they don't even think they love their spouse anymore. Can I ask you a question? Who told you that love was a feeling to start with? Love is a commitment. That means you do it when you feel like it and you do it when you... Some people today say, I don't always feel close to God. But the Bible says your closeness to God is not based on how you feel. It's based on the fact that you are a child of God, and His truth says, I will never leave nor forsake you. Feelings can deceive you. And when you focus on your feelings rather than the facts, you'll find yourself in trouble. Elijah began to feel like he was a failure because one woman did not approve of what he was doing. I've known pastor friends that have resigned churches because one person didn't approve of them. Ignored 200 other people that were happy that he was there and he left over one person because they were vocal in their 
in their displeasure with him. I've known mothers and fathers that raised three good kids, but let one kid that went off the rails make them feel like an absolute failure. It got quiet in here all of a sudden. Can I tell you that one mistake or one person not approving of what you've done does not make you a failure? Mistakes can be made. I want you to understand, I'm, the reason I'm preaching a sermon series called I'm Better Than This is because I want you to know that you can make mistakes. You have permission from heaven to make mistakes, but you don't have permission to continue in them because you're better than this. See, God wants to work in your life because He has put potential in you. And you're not living up to your potential right now. I promise you, no matter where you are, you're not achieving the potential that God put in you. But the truth will make you free. The lies of the enemy won't do it. Your thoughts won't do it. Your emotions won't do it. But the truth will make you free. And a lot of times we come to church and we hear a good sermon or we get uh, uplifted by a great song and we feel like victory is ours, but we don't live in the atmosphere of our lifting. When you come into church, you're in the atmosphere of lifting. But you can't live here. you got to go out there. Most of you are not depressed because of the people you work with or because you went through that divorce or because your car broke down or because nobody's calling you. Most of you are depressed because of something that is inside of you making your heart sick. You're blaming it on all of those existential things. But the main problem is you're focusing on your feelings, not on the facts. The second reason that Elijah got depressed was he started comparing himself with other people. Comparing yourself with other folks is a sure way to get you down in the dumps. Listen to what Elijah said in verse 4. He said, I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. I've had people come to me for years and say, I wish I could be like so-and-so. I used to have people tell me and my wife, I wish my marriage was like your marriage. You don't even know what my marriage is like. You see us for 45 minutes to an hour and a half on Sunday. You ain't there on Tuesday. You don't even know what you're wishing for. Stop comparing yourself to other folks. You don't know what they got behind closed doors. If, I could be, if, if my husband treated me like that, everything would be okay. You have no idea. You see him on Sunday and he's holding the door for her. You don't see him on Wednesday when he is barging through the door wearing his muddy work boots through the middle of the living room leaving his dirty uh, drinks and, and, and all of his plates all over the house. You don't see none of that. You see him on Sunday and say, I wish my husband treated me like, oh, girl, he got you flowers. I don't ever get flowers. I wish my husband bought me Stop comparing yourself to other people because when you start doing that, you're asking for trouble. The Bible tells us not to do it because he's made every one of us to be different. That, there's only one person that can be you, and that's you. And if you're trying to be something that you're not, you're setting yourself up to be a failure. And that's why depression sets in. When I, when I get to heaven, God's not going to ask me, Son, why was you not like Bishop Jakes? Thank God. I couldn't do it every Sunday. Get ready, get ready, get ready. I couldn't do it every Sunday. I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it every Sunday. Thank God I'm not going to have to answer for him. He's not going to ask me why I wasn't like Rod Parsley or why I wasn't like Moses or Elijah. But he will ask me, why was, not, why was what I made you to be not good enough? Why were you always trying to improve on the model that I was trying to build you into? I made you to be you. Why was you not satisfied being that? When we start comparing ourselves to other people, we're always going to compare. Here's the, here's the danger of the compare. If you really want to know, and I don't have time to get real psychological with you, but the problem that we have when we compare ourselves with other folks is this. You always compare your worst to their best. You always compare your weakness to their strength. You look at how good they are at something, and you say, I'm really bad at it. But you don't realize that you're really good at some stuff that they would be awful at. So it's not a fair comparison. I'm not preaching about your circumstances because everybody's circumstances are different. People can have good looks. and Maybe you wasn't blessed in that area. 
People can have money. Maybe you struggle financially. Maybe they got stuff that you can only dream of. But at the same time, they could hate their life and want it to end. And you could be happy with the little bit that you got parked in the garage. And you want to know why I preach a sermon series like this? Because it's even worse when you're a Christian. Because somehow as a Christian, we feel like we make God look bad if we admit we got something broken in us. When we say and admit something like, I feel depressed or I've been going through a dark season, we feel like we're making God look bad. Can I tell you that in your weakness, He is made strong and you ought to be the first one to admit it when you got something going on in your life? Oh, and by the way, let me just reprimand the church for a minute. If you go to a church that won't rally around somebody that is sick, wounded, and neglected and lift them up, that ain't a church. That's a social club. We are here for the hurting. We are here for those that are wounded. And if we're not, we're not a church. Number three, we blame ourselves for what we cannot control. Notice in verse 10, Lord, I've been zealous for you. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broke down the altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. He said, I've worked my fingers to the bone, and I can't get this church saved for love nor money. In his depression, Elijah blamed himself because the nation failed. He took the lack of responsibility on them and put it on himself. You ever ask yourself this? Maybe I could have done something different. You ever ask yourself, what if I would have tried harder? It took me ten full years of pastoral ministry to stop losing sleep every time somebody left the church. I used to lose sleep over it. And the questions would always be the same. What could I have done different? And if if I would have tried harder. Took me 10 years and a lot of counsel from a lot of guys wiser than me to tell me, I can't control everybody else. I will never be able to make decisions for other folks. Me blaming myself for their decisions is assuming responsibility God never intended for me to carry. And that's why you get depressed. Because that is a burden God did not set you up and give you the strength to hold up. Anytime you try to help somebody, you're going to sooner or later realize that people don't necessarily respond the way you want them to. That could be your spouse. That could be your own children. Just because you tell them to do the right thing, just because you raised them to do the right thing, does not mean that they're going to listen and adhere to your advice. God has given everybody self-will. And if you try to carry your load and somebody else's load, you are soon going to find yourself depressed. Yes, you can influence people, but you cannot control nobody. So the final decision rests on them. So if you get yourself depressed over something they have decided to do, you are carrying a load God never intended for you to... uh, So unstrap that harness and let that thing go and get out from under that burden, friend. And last but not least, I'm going to spend the rest of my time talking to number four. Why did Elijah get depressed? Because he magnified the negative. You know how easy it is for us to judge people when we read about their story or watch their story in real life? I mean, I, I read Elijah and I'm like, You just called down fire from heaven yesterday. We're not talking about the move of God in the 1950s. This was yesterday. You killed 850 false prophets. You one old dude. And God empowered you to kill 850 false prophets with your old self. And today, you have ran into the woods, climbed under the broom tree, and asked God to kill you because of one woman. Not Arnold Schwarzenegger. Not, not, not somebody with a great big army that's got A-bombs and tanks sitting on his line. No, 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 no. She just said, by this time tomorrow, may God strike me dead 
if I haven't killed you, you would have thought that a man that called down fire from heaven would have stepped on the lawn and said, want some? Come get some. I just killed 850 prophets of Baal yesterday. You one woman. But instead, this one negative became so big, he forgot all the positive that God had just done in his life. Same thing, verse 10, he says, God, I'm the only one left. All the rest of these people have backslid and went back on you, and they don't love you like I love you, and I'm the only one. Really? Really? That's how it goes down? I know, I know when you walk through your house, you don't ever say, I'm the only one in this whole house that I ever pick anything up. I live with a bunch of... I know y'all don't do that. None of y'all do that. N- none of you ever walk in, I'm the, I live with a bunch of pigs. I tell you what, these, I'm the only one around here can do anything. I know you don't do that. None of you ever get on the road and say, I'm the only one that knows how to drive. I don't even know how these people got to... I know you don't do that. Who taught these people? It's called a turn signal. I know you don't do that. Why am I the only one that knows how to use a passing lane appropriately? If you're doing 35 and they're doing 35, get up. I know y'all don't do that. I'm the only one. He said, I'm the only one. I'm the only one still serving you. All the rest of these people have backslid. I'm going to magnify what's wrong which is going to cause me to miss what's right. He believed that everybody was against him. He believed nobody cared about him. If I had a dollar for every time somebody said that about the church, not just our church, but the church, because we do that all the time. Everybody at that church, nobody cares. If I quit coming, nobody would notice. You're magnifying the negative. Because those same people, those same people that you say don't care, They helped you pray when your grandma got sick. They brought you food when your husband died. When your baby was out, you didn't even know if they were laying on their face and asking God to bring the prodigal home. And and yet you magnify. When we get depressed, we magnify what's wrong. And we miss what's right. Listen Listen to what the Bible tells you. Jezebel threatened him. This is where I'm going to drill down and get real personal. She didn't touch him. She didn't send an army to burn his house down. She didn't throw a punch, not a shove, no attack. It was a threat. But here's the problem with depression. If your mind is working against you, a threat from an enemy will do more harm than an attack would. Because as an attack comes, you'll defend yourself. But if the enemy can get in your... You'll attack yourself. Uh, She didn't do anything to him except plant a seed in his head that changed the way he thought about his existence. When this thing between your ears turns against you, it don't matter how much, what else you've got developed. You could have muscles bulging out of your shirt. You could have all kinds of money in the bank. But if your mind goes to war against you, if you can't get your head to work with you, you're stuck and depression is going to come very quickly. Here's Jacob. Jacob, in the book of Genesis, he says this famous statement, Benjamin is dead. Joseph is dead. And all these things are against me. Here's the problem. They weren't dead. Depression will make you feel like things are dead that aren't really dead yet. You'll call things dead that are still alive, but it's hidden behind the darkness of your depression. And you'll start declaring death over your marriage, death over your job, death over your relationships, death over your health. You'll start declaring things dead that are still alive, but you can't see them because you're so blinded. You've magnified the negatives. Joseph said, or Jacob said, Joseph is dead, but he was alive. Benjamin is dead, but he's alive. All these things are against me. But what did Joseph say when he showed up? The things that the enemy tried to use 
for evil. My God has turned them around and used them for my good. That's why you shouldn't make decisions while you are weak. When you have come off of an emotional problem in your life, you should not be making big decisions. When you are depressed, don't make big decisions. When you are down, don't make big decisions. Because when your mind is not working with you, but it's attacking you, you create a reality that only you understand. That's why some people can't ever feel loved by people who genuinely love them. Because we define what love is right here. And if that person is not speaking to us in a language that we perceive as love, it don't matter how lovely they are, we won't believe them. Because we have created a reality that only we understand. It is hard to fill a bucket that has a hole in it. It's even harder to fill a soul that has one. That's why we need to stop long enough to be healed and let the Holy Ghost do a healing on our emotions, not just our bodies. You remember that cartoon? I remember when I was a kid where they'd have an angel on one shoulder and a devil on the other one. You may remember? I know all you Holy Ghost uh, people that came out of the womb speaking in tongues didn't watch cartoons when you was little, but some of us did. Remember that cartoon? He'd have, a, he'd have an angel on one shoulder telling him good stuff and a devil on the other. That's you. That's me. And you bring him to church with you. The angel's like, hey, we at church. And over on the other shoulder, the devil's going, what are they doing? That's weird. Look at that. Why, why are they doing that over there? Why they, they ain't, them people ain't got no mask on. Them people got masks on. Them people won't even shake my hand. Them people don't look like they like me. Hmm, what, 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 what's going on over here? Them kids are all, oh, you gosh. If I was their parent, the angel's over here going, man, that is a good word. That is a life-giving word. That is a word that will change your life. And the devil's over here going, why is a preacher dressed like that? <laughs> the angel's over here on your shoulder going, if I could just get up to that altar, it'd be like touching the hem of the garment and I would be healed and I would finally let go of this and the devil's over here going, don't you listen to that mess. If you get up there in front of these people, they will judge you. They will, they will wonder over and over and over. Oh, I wonder what they are into. Well, I don't wonder what I need prayer for. Hmm, look at that. Some people are weird. There's this constant pulling and tugging at your mind. But thank God we have an answer. Joshua 1 and 8. You ready to learn something? I'm going to give you something to learn. Joshua 1 and 8. This book of the law. What is that? That's his word. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to replace that and say his word shall not depart from your mouth. But you shall meditate in it day and night that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have great success. I want you to pay attention to the pronouns. Look how often this scripture says your, you, 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 you. You, I'm better than this. I have to stop blaming my problems on everybody else. What is God saying? He's saying a lot of what you experience is not up to them. It's up to you. It's what you think about. It's what you meditate on. Get this word in you. Get his word in you. Meditate. Fix your mind on it. I'm better than this. What I think about shapes my experience. I'm better than this. I refuse to live another day letting other people rent space in my head. I'm better than this. God did not create me to be down and distraught hearted and broken up all the time. I'm better than this. 
It's time for me to stop blaming other folks when the Bible plainly puts the responsibility on me. You. You may observe. You make your way prosperous. You will have good success. And I'm going to leave you with this thought. Elijah wanted to die because of Jezebel. Amen? He wanted to die because of Jezebel. Keep reading 1 Kings and the book of 2 Kings, and you'll be introduced to a man called Elisha. Elisha ended up doing twice as many miracles as Elijah. Elijah mentored Elisha. But in chapter 19, he hasn't met Elisha. What I'm trying to tell you is, if you fit in to die over somebody you have met, it will stop you from your destiny of who you ain't even came in contact yet. Because God's got something better. I'm better than this. I ain't about to let you make me want to die. I'm better than this. I ain't about to let you make me quit church. I'm better than this. Because if I quit over you, I'm going to miss who God's got out ahead of me. I've got some good stuff. I've got some favor. I've got some miracles. I've got some calling. I've got some destiny. I've got some purpose. I ain't even got there yet. And I ain't about to let you mess me up and miss my miracles. The people I have met isn't worth missing the people I haven't yet come in contact with because I'm better than this. Go ahead and give God some praise. So the prophet's getting ready to die. He's waiting on death to come. He's waiting on death. Hey, Elijah was full of faith. When he asked God to do something, he expected God to do it. He expected fire to come down out of heaven. So when he said, God, let me die, he wasn't just belly aching. He wasn't just having a pity party. He expected by faith for God to pull the plug. Leave me here. That's why he went out in the wilderness all by himself. Let God kill me. And I won't be a bother to nobody. And while he's waiting on death to come, an angel showed up and touched him. Right at the moment he was given up, God sent a miracle. The angel showed up and did the most peculiar thing. Started baking cakes. I love this angel. I hope this is my angel. I hope next time I get depressed and God sends an angel to bless me, it's the one that knows how to bake cakes. And the angel showed up and started baking cakes on hot coals. Now, I need you to help me preach to your neighbor. I need you to look over at them and say, God's cooking something up. Uh huh. God's cooking something up. In other words, don't die yet. God's cooking something up. Don't give in yet. God's cooking something up. I know you've been depressed and you've been down, you've been beat up and you've been disheartened, but don't, don't throw in the towel yet, honey, because God's cooking something up. You haven't seen it and you don't know where it's coming from. You don't realize where your help is going to show up and how quick it's going to happen, but best assured, God is cooking something up. He knows what's coming against you and it's not stopping him. He's cooking something up. He knows about the kids. He's cooking something up. He knows about the rent coming due and he's cooking something up. He knows about the trouble that you've been going through, but he's cooking something up. I want to encourage you this morning to shake yourself loose because God is cooking something up. He said, arise and eat, arise and eat, arise. He eats, goes back to sleep. The angel wakes him up again and says, arise and eat some more. Because the first meal was for where he'd been. 
The second meal was the strength for where he was heading. God don't send half good uh, miracles. He don't send half-baked miracles. He don't just deliver you from the past. He gives you power for the future. Arise and eat. Stand with me all over this building. We're going to eat right now in the name of Jesus. Arise and eat. Throw your hands up in the air if you're physically able to. God, right now, I'm better than this. I decree and declare over my life, I'm better than this. I want to minister for the next few moments to every depressed soul in this room, every person whose mind is a prison, every person who has uh, taken other people's downfallings and failures and made them personal and blamed yourself. I want to release you right now under the anointing of the Holy Spirit. I send forth a ministering angel to touch you and to cause you to eat from this good word this morning. I dispatch heavenly assistance right now to help you get over the turmoil that has been happening in your mind. I free you in the name of Jesus. You shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. In the name of Jesus, be released from your torment. That devil, take your hand off of their mind and release their soul. We are better than this. I am better than this. I've turned to you so many times, God, and I have went back into this wilderness, but I'm not going back. I'm better than this. I'm coming out with my hands held high. I'm coming out with victory on my lips. I'm coming out with a heart full of power, and I'm anointed for this moment. I'm better than this. Be free in the name of Jesus. He who the Son sets free is free indeed. Their failure is not your responsibility. Be free. I'm better than this. You get depressed and you start trying to protect yourself because they've hurt you before and you want to make sure they don't hurt you now. Be free in the name of Jesus. I'm better than this. I'm better than this. I'm tired of going back into that same crazy cycle. I come to church, I feel good, I get a good word, I, I memorize it, I put it on Facebook. For a few weeks I feel better, but then I go right back under that broom tree and pray to God He'd let me die. I'm tired of this. I'm better than this. I want to come out and stay out. I want true deliverance, not a momentary pardon. I'm better than this. I'm better than this. Every person in this room that struggles with depression, again, I'm not dealing with people that's clinical. You got an imbalance. I'm not talking to you about that. God can heal you from that too. But I'm talking to you who are like me, who take other people's failures as personal. I'm talking to you who, who allow the worries of life to cause the darkness to fall and you miss the blessings because you magnify what's negative. I'm talking to you. If that's you this morning and you want once and for all to be free of this, I want you to just take your hand and put it somewhere on your head. And I'm praying right now that there's a healing power falling in your hand. You're going to lay hands on yourself this morning and get well. In the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, healing virtue, come and flow in this room. Heal every mind. Dispel the darkness, Holy Ghost. Shoo! Thank you, Jesus. I feel him in the room. I feel him in the room. I feel him in the room. I hope you're claiming it for yourself. I feel him in the room. The healer is here. The deliverer is here. I feel him in the room. If you want to get down at your seat and pray, if you want to come up to the front of this altar and lay yourself out, prostrate before the Lord, come on up. 
I'm not going to lay hands on you. I'm not going to get in your personal space. But I just feel the anointing of the Holy Ghost. If you want to come to the altar, don't wait. I feel the healer in the house. I feel the healer in the house. Those of you that this is not your affliction, but you're a believer, stretch your hands toward these that are gathered up here and pray the Holy Ghost healing on them. I'm better than this. I'm better than this. God made me better than this.